This is episode 236 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported in part by listeners just like you who join our listener community on Patreon. You can join us as a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Ailsa Grant Ferguson of the University of Brighton, UK, and I'm working on a project about Susanna Hall, Shakespeare's daughter. And another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. The uh, pumpkin kind of had a bad reputation among people in Europe and England before it was readily eaten like a Thanksgiving dinner. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In November of 1622, English colonists celebrated what's known today in the U.S. as the first Thanksgiving. Indian natives and English colonists gathered around a celebration of their first successful harvest in a new land. The bounty that this feast enjoyed included one of the staple foods of Thanksgiving that's become almost ubiquitous with fall itself, and that's the pumpkin. Referred to as a pumpion in Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor and as a pompion in Love's Labor's Lost, this little squash may not have been used as a jack-o'-lantern for Shakespeare's lifetime, but the pumpkin nonetheless had a role to play in the life of William Shakespeare. Our guest this week is an expert in the history of pumpkins and the author of Pumpkin, the Curious History of an American Icon. This week, we welcome Cindy Ott to the show to share with us the 16th and 17th century history of the pumpkin. Cindy Ott is an associate professor of the history and museum studies at the University of Delaware and professor at the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Polenzo, Italy, where she teaches an annual course about American Indian food and culture. Along with her book, Pumpkin, the Curious History of an American Icon, she has published articles on food and society, landscape and memory, American Indian and white relations, and the practice of visual and material culture. Cindy spent more than a decade of her career at the Smithsonian Institution and the National Park Service. Cindy is currently working on a book titled Buffalo Stew and Apple Pie, the ongoing reinvention of the Crow Indian Reservation. You can find out more about her work and her coming books in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Cindy. Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Cassidy. Thanks for having me. So how did pumpkins first arrive in England? by boat, but there probably wasn't many people waiting for them there. The uh, pumpkin kind of had a bad reputation among people in Europe and England before it was readily eaten like a Thanksgiving dinner. So the American Indians, of course, celebrated pumpkin. They relied on it. They celebrated it as an important vegetable within their culture. But for Europeans, they first, they compared it to something like the melon, which was similar. But of course, the melon tastes sweeter than the American pumpkin. But it wasn't just the taste that made the difference. It was also the meanings that it had. So the 
pumpkin was associated with the the new world, as they caused it called it, which was considered a more primitive place, and so associated with more rustic people, like the early English colonists, and associated with rustic times. So people in Europe didn't really like eating it, and the American colonists themselves, whenever they could, they would rely on European crops. But before they could rely on European European crops, they had to rely on the ubiquitous pumpkin. Cindy's book points out that pumpkins were one of the food items at the first Thanksgiving in 1621. Cindy, how would pumpkins have been prepared at the first Thanksgiving? Just about any way you can imagine. So pumpkin was prolific. It grew like a weed and it's big, as you know. So before they could have barley for beer or wheat for bread, they relied on the pumpkin. And so it could be used as a vinegar. It could use, be used as a, bed, a bread, a substitute for all kinds of foods. But a common way also for serving it was like a mush. So they'd have a big pot, they throw in maybe some meats, they throw in vegetables, they throw in the pumpkin and just cook it down. In that era, in Shakespeare era, they had a you know a, a wise uh, fear of fresh vegetables because they could go bad and they would make people sick. So often they cooked them a lot. The thing too about the Thanksgiving pumpkin as well is there's actually no record of eating a pumpkin at that famous 1621 Thanksgiving from the two primary sources that were there. They probably ate it because they probably ate it the day before and they ate it the day after too, but it wasn't the celebratory part of the festival as it is now. And it certainly was not a sweet pie. So I want to make sure I share this history correctly since I asked my question wrong there, but we know that they ate pumpkins, but it just wasn't a part of that first meal. The first thing is probably was, as I said, because they ate it all the time because it was a reliable food stuff before they could have cabbages and onions and that they were used to from the old world. So they probably ate it. There's just no documentation about it at that first Thanksgiving. From the account. They have, some, they have a, something called, they have a word term that they use. It could have been a form of a squash, but it's not, it's not documented. It wasn't until the 19th century that became the celebratory, celebratory part of that meal. So did the English colonists send pumpkins back to England from North America if they didn't really like it in 16th and 17th century England? They did because... People at that time in Europe were very interested in cataloging all the new animals and plants that Europeans were finding for themselves for the first time. Native populations had known these plants and animals for a long time, but Europeans were moving around the world and then they want to include all these new fruits and vegetables in their what they called catalog of nature in the botanical dictionaries. And so the pumpkin would appear there in these botanical dictionaries and trying to describe it, they would use these European terms like the term pompion or pepo, that comes from the, the Greek melon, the Greek to ripen, which was associated with the melon. And then they applied it to the American pumpkin. But you can imagine why the American pumpkin didn't seem as savory and good to eat as the sweet melon. But also, as I mentioned, for the, you know, the reasons I explained about the associations with the Americas, which was seen as kind of like a wild place. So actually, the pumpkin then, it was used in botanical dictionary science where, you know, scientists were interested in understanding it, but it was also used just like with Shakespeare as a symbol, as a, and it was an art and literature long before it was on people's dinner plates. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned the pumpion because William Shakespeare uses the term pumpion to refer to pumpkin in his play, Merry Wives of Windsor. And then in Love's Labor's Lost, he refers to a person as Pompeon the Great. And that was a fun reference to me because, of course, I love the great pumpkin from Charlie Brown, but I'm sure there's a totally different history there for that phrase. But Cindy, I wondered if you would explain what pumpkins were called for Shakespeare's lifetime. And was there a figure known as the great pumpkin? 
Yeah. So the pumpkin, you know, now the pumpkin is associated with the jack-o'-lantern, but this was, as you had mentioned, this just predates the jack-o'-lantern, but for a long time, the pumpkin had been associated with wild nature because it was this huge crop. Some people said you could hear it grow because it got so big and because it was associated with the new world. So it had this long history of being associated with wild nature as a place, but also it was used then in art and literature as a metaphor to talk about a place, but also to talk about people. It's surprisingly long-term how with the pumpkin was associated with women. It was also often associated with their bodies, like in reforms of reproduction. And like maybe they're, you know, being pulled by your primitive sexual desires, those kinds of things. But for the men, it was associated with their heads often. And so that's how Shakespeare was using it. So it was often someone who was empty headed, but maybe pompous, someone who was, you know, not, not civilized, but sort of more primitives, kind of a, a pompous goopal. So it was often used a long time for politicians as well. I mean, even up to the present, because they're kind of empty headed, but also sort of full of themselves. That's how Shakespeare was using it. And for the colonists too. So the idea of Pompeon was, this was a place they were going to that was wild. And the fear was about the wild nature, but it was also a fear of what can happen to you if you're living in wild nature, that you can become more wild or follow your more, you know, natural primitive instincts. And so all these things come together, these ideas, these terms, the ways they use it in art and literature, it's, a, you know, it's the meanings so with all kinds of foods. It's always the meanings as much as the meat that make these things valuable and people get appetites for some foods more than, more than the other. So you mentioned that people in England didn't really like pumpkins, but before the English encountered pumpkins in North America, are there any recipes of early 17th century recipes featuring pumpkins? They're in these herbals at this time. So people are eating them and they're eating them the way I described because there's this healthy aversion to fresh vegetables. I mean, you'd have to cook a, you know, a winter squash, a winter type pumpkin anyway. So what they would do is they would sometimes cook within the pumpkin. They would, you know, throw things in there and then put it on coals and then cook the pumpkin that way. That would be their kind of pumpkin pie, or they would just throw it into these stews with all kinds of other, you know, onions and cabbages and other things. That was a way. But, you know, they didn't like it. So it wasn't eaten much. It was really it was only eaten by the European colonists, the English colonists in the Americas because they had to rely on it. As soon as they could, they switched back to the European foodstuffs. So you mentioned that there weren't jack-o'-lanterns in Shakespeare's lifetime, but were pumpkins ever used for other kinds of decorations? I mean, they're obviously so big and they're hollow. It looks like somebody would want to try and decorate with them. But do we have any records of these kinds of things? No, for the whole Halloween celebration, the Sanwi, as it was called historically, they used turnips. They didn't use pumpkins until it was the 19th century in America when it became kind of a parlor game. But it appeared in, in painting. So you can see like even as early as I think like 1501 in, in, in uh, Italy anyway, there start to be parts of symbols and used to describe like natural abundance or used in these Renaissance works of art where the a centaur has got his foot on a pumpkin. So, you know, you can see these kinds of associations between like, you know, wild nature. It's a symbol for that. And that's just why, you know, how then in the larger vernacular, how Shakespeare pilled on it too, to talk about Falstaff as being like a pumpkin, you know, like a pompion for all these things that I've mentioned, kind of wild following your natural urges instead of more civilized ones. So that's its prominent use. Not as people wouldn't find it on their dinner plate so much, but in art and literature. 
Now, in these paintings from the 16th and 17th century, and and I suppose from the American colonist reports as well, do we know what color and size the pumpkins were that the English in the in Shakespeare's lifetime were interacting with? I know pumpkins here where I live come in orange and white colors, but I assume as a squash, it comes in in a variety of shapes and colors. Do we know what the shape and color was for Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, this was a very confusing question for those herbalists and those early natural scientists I was telling you, because a pumpkin and squash are actually botanical indistinguishable. You can cross a pumpkin and a squash. And so you can get all kinds of, there was no distinction, even in terms of how they thought about them. They're botanically indistinguishable. So you can cross a field pumpkin that we're used to, the orange variety with a zucchini to get it, you know, a zumpkin, as they might call it. And so there was very, any kind of variety, striped, you know, crook-necked, round, they were, pumpkin and squash were thought about and talked about the exact same way. Again, this is an American story in the 19th century. We start to create these difference where that round orange pumpkin becomes the pumpkin and squash, you know, lose all their kind of symbolic importance as representing wild nature. And eventually in the Americas is representing that very nostalgic, idyllic, small-scale, small-scale farm. Well, there's obviously a lot of history to unpack here about the pumpkin. In addition to your fabulous book on the history of pumpkins, which we'll link to in the show notes for today, what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, I think one really good one, and it's just a good, again, what can be so useful about food in general. Um, there's a book called by James McWilliams called A Revolution in Eating. And it's about how the American Revolution happened, not just because of these high ideals about political ideals and independence, but also because American colonists, English colonists were upset that they were going to lose their ability to produce and access the foods that they want. So that's a kind of a looking at food as its role in the American Revolution one I think is great. Another really interesting good one is a book actually by a Crow Indian in Montana where I am now, um, Alma Snell's book, Taste of Heritage. And that can give you a really wonderful long overview of the meanings of these native foods to Native American populations themselves. And then there's a, a book, an anthology about food by Paul Freeman called Food, A History of Taste that is includes many wonderful scholars writing about foods in just Shakespeare's time period, I think up through maybe the 19th century or present. So that's a great go-to book for all kinds of ideas about food that your might, listeners might be listen, uh, interested in. Those are excellent resources. We'll link to all of these as well as Cindy's book in the show notes. So make sure you check there to see these resources. Now, Cindy, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Yeah, that's a tough question, as I most know most people say. So I would, I think I'll go with my sort of gut instinct which was Alexander Dumas' Justine, the Alexander Quartets. And probably in this day and age, I haven't read them recently. There's probably problematic, maybe colonial issues in those books. But for me, it was, I think, an inspiration still because it's great storytelling, but it's also great storytelling because it's trying to understand the world from different people's perspectives than your own. So I think that's the reason I would bring the, the, the Alexander Quartet with me. That makes sense. And I don't think we've had Alexander Dumas featured as a Desert Island book on the show before. So I'm excited to see him added to our Desert Island library. So <laughs> what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I'm really excited about this book. It's called Dried Buffalo and Apple Pie, The Crow Indians Reinvention of the American West. And it's a 
kind of a revisionist history of the West, looking at the ways that American Indians have succeeded and been strong historic actors in the development of the West and way they've created successful, though unlikely, alliances with non-Indians. The ways they've thrived and thrived and not just survived and not just been victimized in the 20th century. So I'm telling stories of everyday life on the reservation to bring those kind of stories to light. That's a powerful story to tell. We'll look forward to seeing that book coming soon. Cindy Ott, thank you so much for being here and walking us through the delightful history of pumpkins from Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a fun conversation, and I thank you for sharing it with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. If you liked the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see a picture of the herbals referencing pumpkins and some of the paintings that Cindy shared with us today from the life of William Shakespeare that feature the pumpkin in the drawings and sketches, be sure to stop by the show notes for today's episode. Inside the show notes, you can see more visual content that coordinates with the pumpkin history you're learning about today, along with more information about our guest, Cindy Ott, and the places you can follow her work. Find all of these things at castycash.com slash episode 236. That's castycash.com slash EP236. If you are a loyal podcast listener who enjoys learning about Shakespeare's history here with us each week, then consider joining our listener community on Patreon. You can support the show and access bonus content only available inside our patrons area, including animated versions of Shakespeare's plays, exclusive documentary films, and more. Plus, there are special patron extras like an entire digital downloads library and a monthly Shakespeare book club. Explore all the benefits and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.